You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. He, he, he said a lot of things that you wouldn't want me to repeat about you in Chicago. And, uh, things about me, you know that. I didn't give a damn about them. Well, I know it, but he's in Paris, and let's let him stay there. Okay, before we get started, I want to let you know about the new Patreon site for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where you can help support the podcast. Now, what's your reaction? And also get a special episode. It's at patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. Those are the letters for the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. All right. mhcbuyp. And um, got a bunch of membership levels there. So whatever you're comfortable with, help out. And um, what else can we say? Special episode called Drafting Johnson, which is about the 1968 convention, and also about Lyndon Johnson's withdrawal speech in the beginning of the election year. Yes, he said that he was withdrawing from the presidential election. Does this boy have any appeal to you? But we discussed lots of evidence that Lyndon Johnson was at minimum very involved and possibly wanted that nomination. Well, he will cut into the Kennedy folks, and he... he in 1968. He's young and fresh, but he hasn't been against Medicare, as John has, or he hasn't been against the civil rights. So give a listen to that and support the program at the same time. How about that? Now, what's your reaction? James G. Blaine was at home with his kids eating breakfast on a Sunday, and it was time to go to church. It was summer, but it was a nice day, and felt pretty good, and decided, you know, to take a walk with the children to church. Forget the carriage. Okay, this is Washington, D.C. It's a sultry summer. One of Blaine's congressional allies, James Garfield, is going to write in his own diary that this day, June 11th, 1876, is particularly hot. And there's something else going on not related to the weather. Republicans in about three days are going to pick their presidential nominee. And James G. Blaine, former Speaker of the House, is top of the list right now. Those two events are going to combine. But anyway, James G. Blaine is walking and finally arrives at the Congregational Church, one child in each arm, and walks up the steps a little slowly. His daughter, Haiti, sees him pull out a handkerchief and mop up his eye and says, Daddy, is there something in your eye? And James G. Blaine replies, My head, my head, and drops down, collapses on the church steps. His wife holds his head in her arms. Haiti, the young daughter, rushes into the church, finds a big man who turns out to be a former Union general, 
and they flagged down an omnibus. This is kind of a large carriage that several passengers normally can use, and they clear everybody out and put the Honorable Blaine in there, get him back home. He's not responding, though, initially, and one of his good friends, General William Sherman, visits the house. He's shouting at him, James, do you recognize me? James, do you recognize me? And there's no response. Even when his own wife says, James, do you recognize me? There's just mumbling from Blaine. The timing could not have been worse. Republicans are picking a candidate. He's leading the pack. Blaine was a fixture of Civil War and post-Civil War Republican politics, you could say. Skilled political hand from Maine, a former editor who just knew how to be ambitious, work his way up, please the right people, work with the right people, sometimes go to battle. And he had a reputation in Maine. He became Maine's speaker of its house and then got elected to Congress on a pro-Lincoln ticket and then became speaker of the House of Representatives in the nation's capital. For some time, he got a reputation for being a conniving politician. James Garfield was a friend, but at one point he passes him over for a chairmanship that he wanted. At this point in 1876, we're 11 years from the Civil War. This is during the Grant administration. There's some scandals about uh, corruption in that administration. These are used in that election. Democrats take back the House. Blaine goes from being Speaker to being now Minority Leader. Well, you know, he's still popular among some Republicans, but Minority Leader's no position to run for president. So Blaine had come up with an idea at the beginning of 1876. Democrats were in control of Congress, and they'd like to bring up an amnesty bill. Not a thing to understand is at this point, most former Confederates have already received amnesty due to President Andrew Johnson's previous proclamations and pardons. There are about 750 people specifically who are exempted from Johnson's pardons that still remain. And one of the things, they cannot run for public office. They cannot run for Congress. Others have. I mean, in 1876, at this time, you have in the House and Senate many former Confederate officers, soldiers. You have the former Confederate vice president, Alexander Stevens, in the Senate as a senator from Georgia. But these 750 remain exempted. This is a priority for Democrats in their new administration. They raise the issue. Samuel Randall, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, brings up the bill. James Blaine stands up to make an amendment to Randall's bill. He says, okay, you know, it's fair. It's been enough time, and we're going to pardon 749 of those people, except one name. And that's Jefferson Davis the former president of the Confederacy. Now, Blaine has found his issue to rally his temporarily defeated party in the House. Why Jefferson Davis, he says? Because it was he who crafted the infamous prisoner of war camp at Andersonville. He was the author of murders and crimes. When he says this, there are cheers from the GOP side of the House, and there are boos and calls of slander from the Democratic side. House Speaker Kerr bangs his gavel at Blaine. 
No, I'm being fair, Blaine said. I'm allowing most of your pardons and amnesty, except for Jeff Davis. And again, there's shouts because he is the instigator of the crimes at Andersonville. What about Libby? Someone shouts from either the gallery or one of the Democratic congressmen. Well, what about, right? That's literally what they said. And that's such a common phrase now. What about ism and, and that? Yeah, what about Libby? That is a northern prison that uh, Confederates pointed to, like, hey, you, we at Andersonville, you at Libby. No, Blaine says, that dismissing that. I have letters to prove. And every time the Democrats shout something, he has more, reads more from the record, reads letters from former prisoners at Andersonville about the horrible conditions there. And this goes on and on. Democrats are surprised. See, Blaine wasn't their biggest target in the House There were many people who admired him on the Democratic side. He had been moderate on some issues between the two parties. He was a person who didn't initially vote for Andrew Johnson's impeachment. He voted no on the first vote and then yes on the second when more facts came out. Um, But now he's found his issue. If this bill were allowed to pass, Jefferson Davis could become president of the United States. That would be a problem for Blaine because he, Blaine, wanted that office for himself. They shout at him, a vote for his amendment is scheduled, and the Democrats pick Benjamin Hill, a congressman from Georgia who's known as a very skilled debater, to argue against this amendment. And he goes to the Library of Congress and pulls out all kinds of books and studies for hours to rehearse his speech and some of the arguments are, are are the usual you know the only reason there is an Andersonville is because the north blockaded medicine and food and prevented that from getting to prisoners um, the only reason there's an Andersonville is because Lincoln refused prisoner exchanges this would be received as blah 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 by those on the uh, GOP side at the time Yes, yes, we know you couldn't help but treat prisoners of war cruelly. Blaine interrupts him. Congressman Hill, isn't it true that as a member of the Confederate Senate, you yourself called for the death of Union prisoners? Again, there's gasps. This has gone from an abstract issue about a Civil War event 11 years ago to something personal. Congressman Hill says he didn't remember making any such comment. Blaine had the newspaper clippings. Yes, as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation, Hill had indeed called for the death of Union soldiers who were prisoners if that proclamation were to be enforced. So did Jefferson Davis. Well, Hill said, there are no Confederates in the country now. As we said, Blaine hadn't been the biggest target of the Democrats in the past, He had a few friends on the other side of the aisle, but he would be now. But the more he made Democrats like Hill or Randall mad, the more he incurred the anger of the old copperheads like Sunset Cox of Ohio, who calls Blaine a hyena on the floor of the House. The more he's building up support within his own party's party that feels defeated after the House elections of 74 and 75 and they're out of power, feels defeated with Ulysses S. Grant deciding he's not going to run for a third term and a probable defeat in the presidential election coming up. There are many names for president. You have 
Oliver Morton, governor from Indiana, Burstow, a former prosecutor who was the darling of reform Republicans, Roscoe Conkling, a senator from New York, one of Blaine's rivals. But now, after Blaine's performance on the floor of the House on the Jefferson Davis issue, the amnesty bill, not just not just does he win on getting Jefferson Davis exempted, but the whole amnesty bill is thrown out and not proceeded with. All around the country, there's a clamor for Blaine. He hears that in Illinois, the state is pretty much his. Here's a guy from Maine, and there's Chicago Blaine clubs that are forming. In New York, where his rival, Roscoe Conkling, the two had had a fight on the floor and were never, not speaking to each other anymore, Blaine's winning the majority of Roscoe Conkling's home state delegation anyway. So this is a big issue as Republicans are about to go to Cincinnati, but not everybody likes it. There's a Republican congressman from Massachusetts who accuses Blaine of bringing up ghosts and specters. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to bring up old troubles, old hostilities? This is high stakes. And the Democrats, one month before Republicans meet in Cincinnati in May of 76, hit back. They have heard a story from a board member of a bankrupted railroad that there were these bonds that were related to a payout to James G. Blaine. And they start investigating. Now, Blaine says, this is not a, a proper congressional subject to investigate. This is just, you're just investigating me for politics. And they say, no, 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 we are just investigating the issue of bonds and railroads and corruption in general. And of course, this is not true. They find that there's a bankrupt railroad, the Fort Smith and Arkansas Railroad, and that the Union Pacific Railroad pays Blaine a total of $64,000 in various transactions as a commission for what really would turn out to be worthless bonds. And they're sort of a loan, but not ever paid back. Now, Blaine has deposition from the president of that railroad. It says no such payment was made. The Democrats bring out three witnesses, and in particular, a fellow named Mulligan, who is the secretary of that railroad. And he has a series of letters that prove that Blaine corresponded in order to get this fee for some favor. Um, now, it should be stated that um, Mulligan is not a friend of Blaine, that he had been also secretary to Blaine's brother-in-law. There was a dispute, a falling out, there's a grudge. But Mulligan, interestingly, has these letters. And somehow in a meeting that's off outside of the House of Representatives, Blaine had obtained these letters from Mulligan. Um, not exactly by force, but by some kind of theatrics or coercion or, or something. And uh, they're in Blaine's possessions. But Mulligan says they're incriminating and the uh, Congress is investigating. So if you're following along, I think we go from, uh, you know, they didn't really take polls back then. You used maybe what was written in a newspaper to see who was going to become president or not. But if you had like Nate Silver back in 1876, I think you'd say something like Blaine's chances of getting the Republican nomination were something like 80 percent. 
and now they've just dropped 40. But Blaine strikes back. He still has that deposition that says, you know, this didn't happen. This is, he said, you're just going to Boston, going to Arkansas, con- concocting hearsay about me and bringing it up. And then he pulls out these mulligan letters and starts reading from them. Do you want Does The whole House of Hop Representatives want to hear? I have nothing to hide. And he's reading sections of them um, that do not relate in any way to a crime that are just kind of normal business and However, it's obvious that uh, of these letters, Blaine is selecting which portions to read and which portions not to read, and many know this. It was, Secretary of State Hamilton Fish would say at the time, a coup de theater on the floor of the House. The big moment, though, comes when he questions the head of the committee that's been set up to investigate this matter. Did he receive a telegram? This telegram with it would exonerate him. And the chairman says, I don't remember. Are you sure? Well, I can't, can't recall. You did. You received it last Thursday, and it has not been brought out, and it would acquit me, Blaine says. Embarrassed, there's this shocking moment. The committee dissolves, sends the matter to the Judiciary Committee. Um, not much more is able to be made of it. Now, this is going to come back to haunt Blaine in a decade, but right now... He's sort of relieved of the matter. And you might say that maybe his chances just went up to 60% of winning the Republican nomination now that he's taken on his critics. Indeed, as you meet in, as the Republicans meet in Cincinnati, this exactly is what pro-Blaine forces are going to try to do. And they're making a speech at the time. Um, There's a fellow, Robert Ingersoll, who says, like a warrior, like a plumed knight, James G. Blaine put down his lance on the floor of the House of Representatives and challenged his enemies who were slandering him. And Ingersoll's going to make the point to the Republican Party, Blaine's being attacked by Democrats. Are you going to abandon him now? Are you going to abandon a soldier on the field in the middle of the fight? This speech, the plumed knight speech, is in political history. Certainly one of the greatest political speeches at a convention of the 19th century. Those many contenders for that. Even people who are opponents. Carl Schurz is one of the re- reform Republicans who does not like Blaine one bit. There's a lot of Republicans like that who, who say, hey, we don't like that you're getting attacked by Democrats, but we still think you're a little crafty, a little, you know, not something we want to be part of. We're going to back Bristow or we're going to back this guy who's the governor of Ohio and doesn't touch a drink, doesn't touch a cent of the money, Rutherford B. Hayes. But people like Schertz go up to Ingersoll after the speech and said, that was stunning. That was the best speech I ever heard. I wish it had been for my candidate. And Ingersoll says to Schertz, I would not do it for any other man but Blaine. I truly believe it. This is the kind of influence and power that Blaine's has, the charisma that Blaine had. He's called the magnetic man sometimes by his opponents. But he has a knack for this, and there are many people who support him. It's a odd thing that we don't hear much about Blaine in history, usually in the negative. Um, and that's mostly because he's one of those people. He's like a Henry Clay who just never became president and tried, tries three times. But he's definitely part of the story of American politics. And so another thing is, 
at the Cincinnati convention. He's also seen as the representative of young America. This is what the person seconding his speech says. He's only 46. On the first ballot, he gets 285 votes. It's not enough to win. He's going to need about 100 more to win. But that's the way these 19th century conventions go. He's still more than anybody else. Roscoe Conkling gets about 80 votes. Blaine's still winning most of the New York delegates. He has Illinois, he has Maine, he has several other states scattering all over the country. There's a battle. Conkling has sent his able lieutenant, uh, among others, the collector of the port of New York, Chester Arthur, to try to drum up support for him. Grant's not running for a, a third term. Nobody knows what Grant thinks. There's some rumors that he's for Oliver Morton. Oliver Morton was a very supportive Indiana governor, supportive of the, of the Union war effort. But definitely Conkling is a Grant partisan would like to get that support. Arthur and the others have this scheme where they'll give delegates free carriage rides around. And, you know, Cincinnati has these lovely uh, gardens near the convention and the carriage will take delegates around. And that and other attempts at persuasion don't really work. Conkling's not going to get any, uh, not even going to break 100 during this convention. But something else happens. It's three days before this convention that Blaine has his fainting episode. And... It's horrible timing in this way. It's just enough time, three days, for the news to get to Cincinnati, to reach those delegates, and to, for there to be rumors, Blaine is dead. And then even when more reports come in and Blaine does revive, well, he's not in any condition to be president. Reality is, after a day or so, Blaine is revived and the cause is sunstroke. His doctors do tell him to stay in bed. But he doesn't, and there's a there's even an episode where Secretary of State Hamilton Fish, who is not a Blaine fan, you know, and nobody in the Grant administration right now, they're staying neutral, president staying neutral. Nobody wants to play favorites at the Cincinnati convention. But of course, one day, right as the convention's starting, Walker Blaine appears at his parlor and says, "Well, my father would like to have a carriage ride." Would you be available for a carriage ride? And, you know, here's a guy who's trying to recover. A carriage ride at that time is going to be seen as very restorative, good for your health. Like, don't you want to help out a buddy? And Secretary Fish is the last thing he wants. Well, you can uh, tell your father that he can borrow the carriage. and um, But uh, I have dinner plans. I wouldn't be able to ride with him. And he says, oh, uh, but he really would like to um, ride. And Walker Blaine is 19. It's hard to, you know, say no to this 19-year-old. So, well, why don't, why don't you tell your father to ride with Mrs. Blaine? And then Walker Blaine just says, I really do believe, Secretary, that he'd like to ride with you. Politeness, decorum at this time, you know, wouldn't support a refusal, particularly with Blaine's stricken condition. And Secretary Fish agrees to ride in the carriage with James Blaine. Blaine in the carriage is pointing out specific streets where they should go and pass. It's also an open carriage that Secretary Fish has so that everyone can see Blaine with the Secretary of State. You know, in... in 19th century politics, that's going to be the equivalent of the VP. You're riding around essentially with the administration. And 
Fish pretty much figures out, actually hears from Blaine's doctor that word has gone to Cincinnati about the, the appearance of the two in the carriage. Fish had never been a great friend, but after following the the dictates of politeness would now be perceived as a great friend to Blaine. Still, it's not known how much this fainting episode hurt Blaine. Or if it was just the corrupt activities, the perception of those people he had angered in the past with some of his political dealings. Or the fact that, as was so common in the 19th century, all the other candidates ganged up against the frontrunner. But Blaine doesn't get any higher than 355 votes, not enough to win. And in the eighth ballot, there's a bolt. And the Conkling votes and the Morton votes and other votes go to Hayes. And Hayes gets 380 votes and enough for the nomination. And Rutherford B. Hayes, who Henry Adams is going to call a third-rate non-entity, but he's a safe choice, governor of Ohio, gets the nomination, and gets the presidency. There's an unrelated story, though, that I'd like to tell. Everyone's disappointed, um, both the Blaine people and the Conkling people, with this Hayes nomination. But a Hayes person approaches Chester Arthur, who's a Conkling man, and gives him a Hayes badge. The Conkling badges were blue. He takes it off. The Hayes badge is white. Puts it on. How is New York, sir? They ask Chester Arthur. And in his dandy way, Chester Arthur replies, All the time for Hayes. A New York Times reporter will pick up this episode and report it to show that the New York people are all behind Hayes, including Chester Arthur smiling with his badge. Blaine, for his part, will send a speedy congratulations to Rutherford B. Hayes for winning the nomination, something that's noted for its graciousness. He'll be a contender two more times, but never get the prize. In the second year of George Washington's presidency, 1790, he was gravely ill. An epidemic had reached the capital city then of New York, and George Washington was among those who were on the receiving end. This after he had just caught the disease in the fall and had a rough recovery and suffered other ailments, at one point being operated on for a tumor in his thigh. This last bout was worse than that first and he'd write in his diary. One more incidence of this dreaded disease will probably put me down with my fathers. Washington felt that maybe the presidency was responsible. He had undergone more severe sickness, he writes in his diary, than in his 30 years of life before. A very active life. A life of being with the army, being with other people, being in some crowds, but perhaps not the type of crowds that he was in as president in the federal government. 
you know, in New York where the Confederation Congress had met. It would move to Philadelphia in the next year. The cough, the pain, and the shortness in breathing were among the symptoms described by Washington. Health concerned George Washington greatly. His brother Lawrence was in his early 30s when he passed. His sister Mildred was three and a half, and sister Jane died at 12. Health was all around that family. He would walk, he would ride, he would do other exercises, he drank very little, he ate moderately, tried to get his sleep, he avoided tobacco. But more than that, Washington studied up on medicine. On his death, he had nine medical books in his library. A 1759 order, this would be 30 years before the time we're talking about, from British merchants included medicines. Lavender, jalap, Venice treacle, rhubarb, liquid laudanum, bird lime, balsam sulfur, cinnamon water, tincture of mirth. These are all things he'd order. He'd order the uh, cinchona tree bark for fever treatment. Very common uh, treatment. He had experienced malaria in Virginia woods many times. In this case, it's likely the influenza began in May or April of 1790, though there is no direct record. One note, he signs no papers, official papers, in April or May regarding his presidency. Friend and constitutional delegate George Clymer said, I do not know the exact state of GW's health for a day or two at last. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But in the city, there was a great deal of worrying about his health. And, and it shows up in the letters among people. It's not reported in the newspapers. And certainly Washington doesn't want the nation concerned with himself. But those in the know, know. 
Uh, William McCauley says um, he couldn't hear and nearly lost his eyesight. It wasn't just a touch of flu. He had pneumonia as well, and it shows up in the letters. He will begin a journey southward as soon as he can, which should restore him, Clymer said optimistically. Oh, yes. That was the belief at the time. And and really, well, up until now, we still believe that it's good to get to a nice sunny climate. But certainly in the 18th, 19th centuries, that was a big belief. And uh, Clymer's echoing it there that hopefully he can get out of New York. Uh, Washington does try exercise, and he's able to get himself through a tour on Long Island, a Long Island in New York, in April. Financier Robert Morris feels that it works. He's regained his looks, he says. Abraham Baldwin, congressman, finds him to be manifestly better. His habits require exercise. If he doesn't improve, we must send him to Mount Vernon, Baldwin added. I think that the founding um, crowd of politicians in New York City and the Capitol felt almost guilty for maybe what they had done to America's leader and had taken too much of him. That's what Baldwin reflects. Uh, he's got us started on the new ship. We can give him a rest. But he's a little restored by the trip to Long Island and getting out there and riding. Um, again, you know, this is a guy who exercises every day. He was in very good shape by all accounts of Washington, but it doesn't last. He's confined to bed in May. Dr. Samuel Bard is watching over him. Bard is a student of medicine in England and Scotland. He was accused of loyalist sympathies during the war. He had treated uh, British officers during the New York occupation, never left New York City during that time. But he remained in New York and was one of the best doctors. He was the one who in the previous year removed the tumor from Washington's leg. William McClay said that uh, he went to see Washington and found every eye full of tears. His health is despaired of. Some talk that his condition is grave. Theodore Sedgwick, another congressman, says in May 16th that physicians had no help of his recovery. Abigail Adams talked of hiccups and rattling in the throat and says that Marshall Washington left the room at one point thinking him dying. Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, writes to his daughter weighing in on this topic. The president is taken ill of peri-pneumonia and threatening appearance. Jefferson, writing to Martha, his daughter, says that uh, the commander-in-chief seemed to sweat it out. Getting into detail, his expectations were of a more digested form. His articulation is becoming better. From total despair, we are now in good hopes for him. Yeah, what happens is it seems that just when they're having little hope, Washington gets into the sweating fit and then appears better. This is in line with the type of medicine at the day. Abigail talks of perhaps it was the medicine, the James powders, which is an antimonical, you know, actually uh, an alloy, not unlike lead, a metal alloy that was put, a small traces of it are put into the medicine developed by a British physician, hence the James, um, part antimony, part phosphate, calcium, 
designed to purge and break fevers by producing sweats. You know, it's technically a toxic metal, but this was the medicine at the time, and appearing, at least according to Abigail Adams, it had a happy effect. I mean, you just have everyone talking about this incident, and there's people writing letters all over New York about every kind of little aspect of Washington's condition. Oh, John Fenno, the newspaper editor, writes, the president is expectorating blood. By May 25th, James Madison could happily report that the president could ride again. Richard Henry Lee finds him in an easy chair, stirring up, and Jefferson finds him resuming business by May 27th. Martha Washington writes around the same time that he, of course, Washington, is the least concerned of anyone about his own condition. It is not until May 18th, two months into his, his illness likely, uh, that the first, or, or at least a month into his illness, that the first newspaper reports the event. The New York Journal says the President of the United States has been exceedingly indisposed for several days. The Philadelphia Gazette picks it up, reports the same, and reaction in those papers comes back immediately in their further editions with people reporting the sadness. Rutledge in South Carolina reports that the citizenry is alarmed at the president's ill health. By May 26, newspapers around the country are able to report that recovery. For Washington's part, he knows what to blame. It was the presidency. The inactivity of my office had hurt my health. He decided to take more trips. He would exercise more. And interestingly enough, right around this time, 1790, he and Washington go on a fishing trip off Sandy Hook, New Jersey. What we all wouldn't pay to be a fly on a wall for that fishing trip, right? COVID-19 is novel coronavirus, and the fact that it's novel, you know, means that, uh, right, we can't apply any history, but it turns out, and that's mostly true, this is a very new event, and, but um, you do have SARS, and so I was looking at some of that hits China in November 2002, and there's not, even if China's not completely open now, it's less open then, you don't get great information. And it spreads really all over the globe, but not in as many places or nearly as many places as the uh, coronavirus. Liu Jianlun visits a Hong Kong hotel February 21, 2003. He's going to attend a wedding of his relatives, although later authorities will cast doubt on even this. He has previously, as a respiratory therapist, treated patients for a new and alarming disease that's coming out of southern China, and it's the result of human contact with wild animals. And the later they'll narrow it down and say it's the civets, um, which is a delicacy in China, was at that time. And by his account, he's fine when he's making the trip, but when he arrives, he starts to feel sick. And it's in the elevator ride up to his hotel, to the now infamous room 911 at the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong. 
where he starts to feel sick. And either, depending on the account you read, he's coughing, he's sneezing, he could be vomiting, literally in the hallway getting to his room. This is how bad it is. There are... The hotel is crowded. There are other people in the elevator. Um, there are other people on the floor where he's on. He feels so sick that he checks himself into a nearby emergency room. Within days, people that are on that hotel floor, just merely, you know, not in the room with them, just merely opening their own door, perhaps in the hallway, maybe getting the disease from droplets in the air or from something they touched or from the elevator, people in the elevator, people in the emergency room, including nurses, doctors, intern, um, interns, are all going to get sick and some will die. And the disease will be spread to several other countries. When he arrives at the Kwangwa Hospital, pink and white concrete block building that's five minutes away from the hotel, he knows that he's gravely ill and he knows it's this new disease. He said, lock me up, he tells the medical staff. Don't touch me. I've contracted a very virulent disease. He'd been caring for patients with the disease at Guangzhou and he could see what it would do. And it happens quick. Unfortunately, doctors at Guanghua in, in Hong Kong had never seen a patient with the illness before, didn't know what he was talking about, and they couldn't quite take him just at his word like that. You know, there were cases in China in November, but that word isn't getting to Hong Kong from China. Hong Kong is um, a special district of China, administrative district at this point that the British had left, you know, in 97, but they weren't communicating enough. They don't realize the seriousness. They only, as he's deteriorating, all of a sudden he can't breathe. They're then moving him into isolation. 70 medical staff, 17 medical students at the hospital are struck with the illness. He dies on March the 4th, 2003. Now, Kwan Su Chu, 78-year-old Canadian who happened to be on the ninth floor, gets the disease. By this time, she had returned to Toronto, and she passes SARS to five members of her family. Unfortunately, her 44-year-old son dies. Another uh, Chinese-American businessman who had shared the elevator with Liu goes to Hanoi, Vietnam. He's admitted to the Hanoi Hospital, and then he's being flown back to Hong Kong, dies on March 13th. A Vietnamese nurse who cares for him catches the virus and dies. At least 50 other health workers at two hospitals in Hanoi get this. Three young tourists from Singapore waiting in the lobby for the elevator with him return home and infect at least 17 medical staff in Singapore. One of the people they infect in the Singapore hotel is going to visit an international medical conference in New York. He's flying back from New York. There's a stopover in Frankfurt. He's too ill to get on the next plane. So now you have many countries involved here. (laughs) Hong Kong authorities eventually get control of this. They start isolating 
um, areas where there's an infection. The WHO is involved. They estimate that roughly 4,000 of the SARS cases could be traced back to this one person's stay in a hotel. Then in Hong Kong, there's a disturbing phase two, where in a 33-story tower, and Hong Kong, if you if you know, is full of these kind of high-rise units called the Amoy Gardens housing estate, um, all of a sudden gets 100 cases. Now, how is this happening? People are reporting they're, they're, they're sending officials in, they're tracing contact, and people haven't contacted each other in this tower. Now they're scared. What's going on with SARS? Is this transmitted through the air? No, they discover after some detective work that what it is is that there's some bad sewage. And then, unfortunately, uh, waste material coming from toilets is overflowing in certain piping and getting into floor drains. And tiny droplets, you know, it's not like you can see the sewage running in, but droplets are coming onto the floors of other units and infecting people. They finally found what they call the index patient, right? The person that brought it in. And it is a 33-year-old man who lives in China, but visited, visited his brother in this Amoy Gardens regularly. He uh, had disease, kidney disease. He's being under dialysis at Prince of Wales Hospital in Hong Kong. And there he possibly caught it from a staff member. He's now giving it to his brother and others in this unit. His brother develops it, his sister-in-law, two nurses to it who attended to him at Prince of Wales Hospital. They all develop SARS. By April of 2003, there had been 321 cases in Block E of Amoy Gardens. They quarantined the area, and police were began a manhunt for 147 residents of Blocky who fled. They fled to other hotels or to stay with family or friends because they were worried about spreading the virus into the community. They didn't understand SARS. And it is shocking, and as, as someone who reads history, it's shocking to see the kind of reactions then and then to see what we're facing now because it's some of the same things. You know, They didn't know quite what to do they got to it too late. They didn't have any testing for it, so it was all symptom-based. And luckily for them, with SARS, it was a little easier to identify symptoms because as far as we know, there weren't asymptomatic cases. Um, but in terms of the severity of SARS, it was quite deadly, almost 1 out of 10. You know, in terms of known cases, were dying. And in all of the same symptoms, the pneumonia, the uh, heart damage, the lack of breath and needing to go on a ventilator, all of these same things were happening. Also, um, the Hong Kong authorities start running out of PPE, personal protective equipment, masks. They don't have enough. They can't produce enough gowns. They can't produce enough masks. Very eerily similar. And that's why you saw this crisis outbreak because they had that history your southeast asian countries are much more prepared than perhaps the united states was 
Now, in Toronto, in Canada, there's an outbreak in March of 2003 stemming from this one visitor to the hotel in Hong Kong. And the warning goes out to travelers intending to visit the, the city. Um, they'll end up having a 90 cases in Toronto. So there's like a mini outbreak in Toronto as well. Hong Kong learned about isolating patients, about redesigning hospitals, having sections to be able to isolate patients, wearing the proper gear, um, eventually testing, although testing's a new phenomenon. I, 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 you know, I hear a lot of it. People like, where's the testing? Where's the testing? We have to remember that tests for some of these, um, for such a novel virus, you know, are just developed and then you're ramping it up. But yes, there's testing now and then certain nations, Korea, Singapore, uh, even China, were able to bring it to bear faster than the United States was. But the thing about SARS where the lesson wasn't learned, it, it was learned because the punishment was harsher in Hong Kong. But why we didn't learn enough from it was because after 700 people or so dying from the disease, it actually dies out. There just was nowhere else for the virus to replicate. And it's been monitored uh, other than incidents in a laboratory where, say, you have a SARS virus there and the lab worker accidentally gets infected. There's been no cases of SARS. There is MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that develops. So you are seeing a pattern that these outbreaks of these respiratory diseases develop. My show is, you know, my history of politics, not about medicine, but you see that medical history is important too, because the whole um, healthcare system is also based on history. A lot of your virolo virology comes from the 1980 flu epidemic, 1918 flu epidemic. You know, there's other flu epidemics, big one in 1978, of course, 2009 with H1N1. There was a decent, um, decently bad flu season 2007-2018 that kind of went underreported. Bad flu season in 1968, the so-called Hong Kong flu. 1957, there was a pretty bad uh, flu, and that some of those flu strains are still circulating. So I've been going way back and reading Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year. Daniel Defoe, you know him for Robinson Crusoe. But he was one of these authors that, you know, to make a living writing books like that, you had to come out with quite a lot of books and pamphlets and the like. And so he was one of these kind of factories producing a lot of writings. And one thing he tried was Journal of a Plague Year. Now, it's not Defoe writing about his own experience, though plagues were common in British history. It's him riffing off notes possibly from um, his uncle or granduncle or just from various published accounts that he sort of consolidated. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but it's a very pious man, we're talking about 1664, writing an account of a plague, and it would turn out to be the bubonic plague, so not a respiratory condition, a bacterial disease that is spread by fleas and very often fleas that are on rats. I just thought it'd be interesting to hear some of Defoe's accounts because, and just keep in mind, this is 1664. It was about the beginning of September 1664 that I, among the rest of my neighbors, heard in ordinary discourse that the plague was returned again in Holland, for it had been very violent there when two men said to be Frenchmen died of the plague in Longacre. Uh, people showed a great concern at this and began to be alarmed all over the town. And the more, because in the last week, in December 1664, another man died in the same house, and of the same distemper. And then we were easy again for about six weeks, when none having died, but after that, I think it was about the 12th of February, another died in another house, but in the same parish, and in the same manner. So Defoe, or his character, is describing some things that we feel today, right? We're just kind of watching cases and also worried about other places in the world. He describes how the cases start to pile up. Some people start leaving the city. His description of London is this. Indeed, nothing was to be seen but wagons and carts with goods, women, servants, children, coaches filled with people of the better sort and horsemen attending them and all hurrying away. Then empty wagons and carts appeared and spare horses with servants who, it was apparent, were returning or sent from the countries to fetch more people. Besides, innumerable numbers of men on horseback, some alone, others with servants, and generally speaking, all loaded with baggage and fitted out for traveling, as anyone might perceive by their appearance. It was a very terrible and melancholy thing to see. Put it in context, he's talking in the 1720s, he's writing this kind of novel. It's like one of the first novels, but it's not really a fictitious novel about a very serious and different time kind of using the history to tell what hey there was a time when the city london that you're seeing now busy streets lots of commerce going on was in this condition this hurry of the people was such for some weeks that there was no getting at the lord mayor's door without exceeding difficulty there were such pressing and crowding there to get passes and certificates of health for such as traveled abroad for without these there is no being admitted to pass through the towns upon the road, nor to lodge in any inn. Then Defoe describes his brother and his attitude versus Defoe's character. My brother, though a very religious man himself, laughed at all I had suggested about its being an intimation from heaven, and told me several times of such foolhardy people, as he called them, as I was, that I ought to indeed to submit to it as a work of heaven, if it had been any way disabled by distempers or diseases, and that then, not being able to go, I ought to acquiesce in the direction of him, who, having been my maker, had an undisputed right of sovereignty over disposing of me. Then he proceeded to tell me of the mischievous consequences which attended the presumption of the Turks and the Mahometans in Asia in other places where he had been, for my brother being a merchant, 
was, a few years before, as I had already observed, returned from abroad, coming last from Libsyn, and how presuming upon their professed predestinating notions, and of every man's end being predetermined, they would go unconcerned into infected places and converse with infected persons, by which means they died at the rate of 10 or 15,000 a week, whereas the Europeans or the Christian merchants who kept themselves retired and reserved generally escaped the content contagion. What's going on there? <laughs> 1664, and what are we seeing? The same debate about, first of all, do you leave a certain area that's a, quote, hot zone, and then secondly, do you stay social distanced or do you just go out and bravely do your business in the world and, and Defoe's living this debate? Upon my arguments, my brother changed my resolutions and I resolved to go. So see, um, Defoe's character, who's this very pious man who's just like, let's just leave it to God, is now getting convinced, yeah, you know what, I'm going to need to social distance myself. But he decides not to in the end, or is unable to. His brother leaves. It was a very ill time to be sick in, for if anyone complained, it was immediately said that he had the plague. The face of London, now indeed strangely altered. I mean, the whole mass of buildings, city, liberties, suburbs, Westminster, Southwark, and all together, for as to the particular part called the city or within its walls, that was not much infected. But in the whole face of things, I say, it was much altered. Sorrow and sadness sat upon every face. And though some parts were not overwhelmed, all looked deeply concerned. Now, history doesn't say anything about the present, right? <laughs> There's even an attempt to control news, like some endeavors were used to suppress the printing of such books as terrified the people and to frighten the dispersers of them. These terrors and apprehensions of the people led them into a thousand weak, foolish, and wicked things which they wanted not a sort of people really wicked to encourage them to. And this was running about the fortune tellers, to cunning men, astrologers to know their fortune, or, as it is vulgarly expressed, to have fortunes told them, their nativities calculated and the like. This folly presently made the town swarm with a wicked generation of pretenders to magic, to black art, as they called it. And I know not what, nay, to a thousand worth dealings with the devil than they were really guilty of. And this trade grew so open and so generally practiced that it became common to have signs and inscriptions set up at the door. Here lives a fortune teller. Here lives an astrologer. Here you may have your nativity calculated. And Friar Bracon's brazen head, which was the usual sign of these people's dwellings, was to be seen in almost every street. So he also says some people will have a Merlin's head you know, to indicate that they practice this art. So he's, as a very religious figure, and seeing, you know, your fate is in the hands of God, so to speak, uh, be strong, be resolute, but be pious. The winning message in when he's writing this book, he's going to attack both the charlatans who practice this black magic. He also goes into people peddling chemicals and things like that, and kind of false preachers who are roaming the street during the time. He salutes the government and its actions. The ministers do them justice and preachers of most source that were serious and understanding persons thundered against these and other wicked practices. He goes into some of the restrictions that are put on houses. The master of every house, as soon as anyone in his house complaineth, either of blotch or purple, or swelling in any part of his body, or falleth otherwise dangerously sick, without apparent cause of some other disease, shall give knowledge thereof to the examiner of health within two hours after the said sign shall appear. 
and as soon as any man shall be found by this examiner or searcher to be sick of the plague, he shall the same night be sequestered in the same house, and in case he be so sequestered, then though he afterwards die not, the house where he sickened should be shut up for a month, after the use of the due preservatives is taken by the rest. For sequestration of the goods and stuff of the infection, their bedding and apparel and hangings of chambers must be well aired, with fire and with such perfumes as are requisite within the infected house before they begin be taken to use. This is to be done by the appointment of an examiner. Like an audience to a movie that kind of knows what's going to happen in the end, it's it's sometimes like uh, frustrating or um, reading about people in these times with the medical knowledge that we know today, because, you know, in some ways they're close words like infection and contagion, you know, obviously exist at this time, though they know nothing of microorganisms. They know nothing of bacteria, of virus. They can't, for instance, directly connect any activity like using soap and water, for instance, even to killing little tiny microscopic germs. They simply can't do it. Yet we shouldn't think that they're not close. You know, they're, they're kind of close. They kind of get that maybe uh, unclean conditions, cramped up in a house with another sick person, that people can give it to other people, even if they can't prove it scientifically. Uh, these things are, are known. So it's kind of funny to see, you know, in, even in 1664, you're not going to get germ theory of disease till the 1870s. Person that um, Lister that pushes it is is going to be laughed out of medicine even. You're not going to get um, a lot of uh, viral discoveries until the turn of the 20th century. Okay. All plays, bear baitings, games, signing of ballads, buckler play, or such causes of assemblies of people be utterly prohibited, and the parties offending severely punished by every alderman in his ward. That all public feasting, and particularly by the companies of this city, and dinners at taverns, alehouses, and other places of common entertainment, be forborne till further order and allowance, and that the money thereby spared be preserved and employed for the benefit and relief of the poor. And of course, that disorderly tippling in taverns, alehouses, coffee houses, and cellars be severely looked unto as the common sin of this time and the greatest occasion of dispersing the plague. And that no company or person be suffered to remain or come into any tavern, alehouse, or coffee house to drink after nine of the clock in the evening, according to the ancient law and custom of this city, upon the penalties ordained in that behalf. You know, that's interesting. I don't appear to quite shut them down but um they want to limit it and look into it the mayor gets more powers that defoe describes during this period he starts having daily meetings he has an awful lot of deputies through what previously is a somewhat ceremonious office now he's getting deputies and searchers so that they can investigate things look oh there's a rumor that there's a house where a sick person is send uh if we if we can't spare one of the doctors you know in physics send send a uh, a searcher over. 
Here I must observe again that this necessity of going out of our houses to buy provisions was in great measure the ruin of the whole city, for the people catch the distemper on these occasions one of another, and even the provisions themselves were often tainted. At least I have great reason to believe so. I am certain the butchers of Whitechapel, where the greatest part of the flesh meat was killed, were dreadfully visited, and that at least to such a degree that few of their shops were kept open, and those that remained of them killed their meat at Mill End, and at that way brought it to the market upon horses. So, um, disease at meatpacking plants, in effect, right, is a, is a factor here. The food supply is a factor. And going out and going in grocery shopping at the time, securing provisions at the market, they see as something that's leading to an increase in contraction of the disease. And he's not completely wrong because the rodents that are going to um, spread the fleas that will then spread this disease are certainly going to be concentrated in areas where there's food being prepared. The book, A Journal of a Plague Year, has little stories and it like there's various people speaking. He's using elements that are going to show up later in his novels. He has a stories of a couple, two brothers who are arguing whether to go into the countryside or not. And you sort of see the social distancing debate happen. Uh, Thomas and John. Truly, says Thomas, I'm at great loss of what to do, for I find if it comes down to whopping, I shall be turned out of my lodging. John says, turned out of your lodging, Tom, if you are, I don't know who will take you in, for people are so afraid of one another now, there's no getting a lodging anywhere. Thomas, why, the people I lodge are good civil people and have kindness enough for me too, but they say I go abroad every day to my work and it will be dangerous, and they talk of locking themselves up and letting nobody come near them. John says, Why, they are in the right to be sure if they resolve to venture staying in town. Thomas, Nay, I might even resolve to stay within doors too, for except a suite of sails that my master has in his hand, which I am just finishing, I am like to get no more work in a great while. There's no tradesters now. Workmen and servants are turned off everywhere so that I might be glad to be locked up too, but I don't see they'll be willing to consent to that. John. Why, what will you do then, brother? And what shall I do? The people where I lodge are all gone to the country, but a maid, and she is to go next week, and to shut the house quite up. Thomas. We are both distracted. We did not go away at first. Then we might have traveled anywhere. Now there's no stirring. We shall be starved if we pretended to go out of town. They won't let us have victuals. No, not for our money nor let us come into the towns, much less into their houses. John, why, brother, our condition at this rate is worse than anybody else's, for we can neither go away nor stay here. You will go away. Whither will you go, and what can you do? I would willingly as go as you, but if I knew whither. John, look you, Tom, the whole kingdom is my native country, as well as this town. You may as well say I must not go out of my house if it is on fire, that I must not go out of the town I was born in when it is infected with the plague. I was born in England, and I have a right to live in it if I can. Thomas, but you know every vagrant person may be, by the laws of England, be taken up and passed back to their last legal settlement. John, but how shall they make me a vagrant? I desire only to travel on lawful occasions. Thomas, what lawful occasions can we pretend to travel, or rather wander upon? It will not be put off with words. Is not flying to save our lives a lawful occasion? So, you see in there the debate between the two brothers. Something that uh, books at this time might do is to carry on a 
public policy or political debate between a dialogue between two people. Um, but you kind of see that debate to stay to go to social distance or not is kind of uh, in the discussion of this brother, you know. Um, now, he talks about where the disease lowers and then people go out. This is London in 1664. Ah, but it was all to no purpose. The audacious creatures were so possessed with the first joy and so surprised with the satisfaction of seeing a vast decrease in the weekly bills, this is the number of dead, that they were impenetrable by any new terrors and would not be persuaded. This imprudent rash conduct cost a great many their lives, who had with great care and caution shut themselves up and kept retired, as it were, from all mankind, and had had by that means under God's providence been preserved through all the heat of that infection. The ministers took notice of it and laid before them both the folly and danger of it, and this checked it a little. So you see in Defoe's work there that you, that debate carrying on to when to reopen and the like. So that's all I'll read of that. You know, you can go on and read a journal of the plague year yourself if you're so inclined. I'm just picking out very small points from it. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There is a link there to the Patreon site uh, where you can help support us and also get a special episode and some other special episodes, one of which is Giraffe Johnson, LBJ, his withdrawal, and the 1968 Chicago Convention. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.